beginning in verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have briefly written. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, you are exalted above the heavenly angels we just spoke of. The highest heavens cannot contain you. You are above all. You are in all, and you are through all. You are Lord over all people and all things, whether in heaven or on earth. You are infinite and eternal. You never began, and you will never end. You are drenched. You are soaked with royal majesty. You are king. You answer to no one. You owe no debt to anyone. You are invincible. You do not know how to be frustrated. You cannot be overcome by anything or anyone. You alone are God, and we bow before you. We hallow you as our king, and we pray that your name might be hallowed on earth as it is in heaven. Father, you have done far, far more than is necessary to inspire our trust in you. Your steadfast love has never failed us. You've proven your love and your sufficiency by giving your own son to suffer humiliation and to die for us. And yet even with all of that proof of your goodness, we confess, God, that we still doubt you. In spite of your perfect, unassailable record of faithfulness, we confess that we still do not trust you as we ought. We've worried, we've become anxious, we've wondered if you cared about us, wondered if you'd forgotten about us, been guilty of arrogant unbelief. And Father, we pray that you would forgive us for our lack of faith. Cause us to hold fast to your sufficiency in all of life. Cause us to look to you more readily than we do, not just after we've given up on every other possible solution. Cause us to look to you first. God, have mercy on us. Continue to show your unimaginable patience with us, for we need it. God, we thank you for all the blessings of this life, like the rain, which we needed so badly. And God, for all the other personal blessings you give us. We thank you that in your amazing grace, you've called us to yourself and you've spent the blood of your son, the precious blood of Jesus, to purchase us as your people. God, thank you for the union with Christ that we have, that we've been seeing in Ephesians, that causes us to be 
possessing that perfect righteousness of your Son. Thank you for your justifying work in us. Thank you for the gift of faith that enables us to receive your justifying work and the very righteousness of your Son, Jesus. God, we thank you for meeting our material needs in a day when so many people are not enjoying that blessing. We thank you for peace and safety in our part of the world when many other parts of this world are erupting daily in violence and mayhem. God, we bless you for this church and for those you've called to be a part of it. Help each of us to know what our part is within your church, that your ministry would be strengthened here so that Christ might be made more fully manifest among us. God, we pray for your reviving spirit to work in us. When we're weak, make us strong in Jesus. Where we're filled with fear and doubt, make us bold like lions. Where we are sick, heal us. Where we're alone, send us friends and companions. Where we're in danger, protect us. We bless you that you are sufficient to meet all of these things, to meet all our needs. You are enough. God, give us faith to live with an eternal perspective, not counting our lives as precious, but daily surrendering our wills and our desires to you. Out of a supreme love for you, cause us to avoid the idols of this fallen world. Cause us to walk in holiness and humility and help us to remember we can't live that way except by your grace. God, we pray for our church's radio broadcast. Thank you for the good reports that we've heard from some who've been listening. God, use that ministry to bring many people to yourself and to start attending either this church or some other gospel preaching church. Father, we think about today the believers in Ukraine. God, in your providence, you've put them in the crucible and on display for the world to see. Strengthen them in your Son so that they might shine, that they might radiate with your glory as they prove your sufficiency in the midst of so much deprivation. Help us to know what our part is in ministering to your people in that forsaken, war-torn place. Father, we think about Brenda Levin. God, we pray that you would help her, that you would heal her back, that you would continue your healing work in John Hickson and in Warren Thurston. Father, we pray for your blessing on those people. Father, we pray for the message that we're about to hear. God, we pray that it would be your word for us today. Give us hearts to accept and receive us. God, keep us a week, wake in this warm room. Keep us from distraction and plant your seeds of truth deeply in us so that they could produce much fruit for your kingdom. Father, we pray that you'd help me to speak your word boldly as I should. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we continue this week as you just read, you just heard read anyway, chapter three of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Last week we saw that Paul, after he begins this prayer in chapter 3, he interrupts himself, and he begins this 12-verse digression, which really talks about his role as the apostle to the Gentiles. As Paul did in chapter 1, he speaks, as you heard, this mystery. And a mystery, of course, is a truth that has never been revealed, in this case in the Old Testament, but now Jesus has supernaturally revealed it to this Paul, this apostle. This mystery is in verse 6. He tells us that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. 
Paul elaborates on this truth in this next section, which I want to read once again because I want us to be very familiar because this is not an easy text. He says, To me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This text divides into three sections. First, in verse 9, is Paul's mission, or the second half of his mission. We looked at the first half last week. Verses 10 and 11 reveal the purpose of Paul's mission to the Gentiles, or one purpose. And verses 12 and 13 discuss the consequences for the church of this mission to the Gentiles. Last week, we looked at Paul's commission to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. We looked at that. Here in verse 9, we see the rest of Paul's mission as apostle to the Gentiles. And so he says, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. What does that mean? That's such a typical Pauline phrase that is, you have to think about it. It doesn't just jump off the page. Well, to bring to light means that Paul would bring something out in the open, something that's been hidden before, but now has come in to, after ages of being hidden, come in to reality. But what does it mean by the plan of the mystery. We know about mystery. What is the plan of the mystery? Well, the word translated plan means administration or strategy or management. What he's saying is it's Paul's unique responsibility, or at least in a unique way. God has given this revelation to him about the Gentiles to communicate God's mystery to the Gentiles. And it's been hidden for ages, which is a very long time. But with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the gospel going to the Gentiles, Paul says, now is the time for the unveiling of this mystery. And the mystery, of course, is the unification of the Jews and the Gentiles into one people. That's what he's saying. Paul ends verse 9 by stating that God, to whom this mystery belonged, is the one who created all things. Now, when there's a reference to God creating all things, that isn't just thrown in arbitrarily. There's a reason why he puts that. There's a connection of some kind between God who reveals mysteries to these people and God as the creator. And Paul is emphasizing here the absolutely epic scale of this unifying work of God. Remember back in 2.15, this unifying of the Jews and Gentiles is far more than simply reconciling two disparate groups of people. Paul has said this is the creation of a new man, of a new humanity in Christ Jesus. So Paul's implying that the creation of this new humanity is absolutely to be compared with God's initial creative work in creating Adam and the human race. Now, as the God who created all things, he has created a new humanity. Though we may not see the creation of the church as on par with the creation of humanity, God makes that comparison. 
It's been Paul's mission to reveal this glorious and previously undisclosed truth to all people. In verse 10, Paul reveals the purpose of this mission to all the Gentiles, and it is not a purpose that we would have ever intuited. This is a very, in some ways, bizarre purpose. In verse 10, he says that this purpose is so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. If that sounds like it's kind of a big deal, it's because it really is a big deal. When Paul reveals that God, through his church, makes known the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, he reveals a truth that probably most of us don't very frequently think much about, and that's especially true here in the West, where we have an anti-supernatural bias. This is a consistently revealed biblical truth. This is not an obscure reference at all. This is not a one-off. This is throughout the Bible, and the truth is that there exists, in addition to our earthly reality, a heavenly realm where supernatural angelic beings dwell, and they're active, and their activity can have profound effects on what happens on earth. The Bible clearly teaches that. Old Testament, New Testament this cosmic or this extraterrestrial element of reality is in the Bible. But we in the West find ourselves not particularly comfortable with at least part of that. To many of us, this feels a bit too much like science fiction, like an episode of the X-Files. But this business of the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places also appears later in Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul says in verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There it is. Even more detail. These spiritual powers here in verse 3 probably refers, like in verse chapter 6, to both the good and the angelic beings and the bad. There's good angelic beings in the heavenlies and there's bad demonic angelic beings working in the heavenlies. And to give us a specific example of how these heavenly angelic powers relate to each other, but also to relate to what is going on in the earth, we need to go back to the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 10, because in Daniel chapter 10, God pulls back the veil on this heavenly realm, and he allows us to peer into this unseen spiritual world. Daniel chapter 10 reveals the kind of angelic activity that occurs in the heavens and the kind of impact that it can have on our life here on earth. This is a fascinating chapter. To lead up a little bit, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel prays this powerful prayer of repentance near the end of the 70-year exile in Babylon, or what was Babylon. Daniel pleads for God's forgiveness for Israel's sin, but he also asks that God would end this exile. They're now in Persia, because Persia had destroyed and defeated Babylon. And that's important for us to know. In response to that single prayer, if you read chapter 10, you'll see this. The angelic heavenly realm lights up with activity. And basically what happens here in chapter 10 is what is revealed 
by what happened in the heavenlies. Three weeks after Daniel prays this prayer, he sees a vision of a glorious angel who comes to him and tells him that he had come in response to Daniel's prayer. But he says in verse 13 of chapter 10, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, this is Michael the archangel, one of the chief princes came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. In other words, as he was going to announce to Daniel God's plan for the future, in response to Daniel's prayer, this good angel who's bringing this message down from God is intercepted, is intercepted by an evil angel who is revealed as the prince of the kingdom of Persia. And he fought with this good angel and he detains him for three weeks from completing his mission until one of the chief princes, Michael, who we see in other places in the book of the Revelation in particular, is an archangel, the highest ranking archangel. And so he comes and he fights against this evil demonic angel, this prince of Persia, until the messenger is then freed and then he comes to Daniel and delivers this message to Daniel. So it's a picture of angelic conflict in the heavenlies. The reason why the prince of Persia worked so hard to keep this angel from revealing his message to Daniel, we know, is because once a prophecy of God is publicly announced and declared, what God is going to do, it always happens. God never fails to keep his word. So the demonic angel is fighting to keep the good angel from revealing a prophetic plan from God that outlines what he's going to be doing. The chapter reveals that not only Persia, but also, if you go to verse 20, Greece, because the prince of Greece is also mentioned. So both Persia and Greece have these demonic beings or princes over them that are in some way assigned to these nations and who exert satanic influence over those nations. These princes are what the New Testament calls principalities, or a prince over a polity, a state or organized community of some sort. It's not a coincidence that these angelic beings, the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece, appear in this vision at this time in history. The Bible, as well as secular historians, reveal that these two countries, these two empires, Persia and later Greece were the major regional powers in the ancient Near East at this time and for the next few centuries. And history more importantly records what the book of Daniel repeatedly prophesies, if you're familiar with that book, and that is that these two empires would, under God's providence, have political authority over Israel. Persia first, and then Greece after Alexander the Great defeats Persia. So, that's important. That helps us understand what this vision is. The prince of Persia first battles against God's angelic beings, including Michael. And Michael, of course, represents Israel or God's people until later when the prince of Greece will take up the fight in verse 20. You can read the whole chapter for yourself. The point is, there is a direct correlation between what is happening in the heavenly realms and what occurs within the kingdoms of this earth. And this was written long before Greece became the world power. So this is prophetic. Now, with that as background, what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 
3.10 is that it is for the enlightenment and for the astonishment of these kinds of rulers and authorities in the heavenlies that God displays his manifold wisdom. And as we saw in Daniel chapter 10, these angels, with God's absolute control over them, are obviously interested and even actively involved in helping to shape the course of human history. Paul is saying that the working out of this mystery, this unification of the Jews and the Gentiles, is for the benefit of and the amazement of these angelic rulers. This is amazing. God seeks to be glorified before these angelic rulers and authorities as he displays his manifold wisdom on the earth. So they're evidently watching the earth because God is being glorified for them by activity that he's doing on the earth. And Paul reveals that the theater, the stage where God displays his manifold wisdom to these angelic rulers is the church of Jesus Christ. It is Christ's church where God reveals to them the glory of his manifold or multifaceted wisdom. Paul is saying that this unification of the Jews and the Gentiles into one new humanity, God's creation of this new human race is what displays the manifold wisdom of God to these angelic beings. This is one of his purposes for doing this. The question now is, well, what is it? about the joining of Jews and Gentiles into the church that would display the wisdom of God in such a way as to make the angelic rulers sit up and take notice? Why would they be so fascinated with the unification of Jew and Gentile in the church? Well, the short answer is that Satan obviously has very much interest in the initial creation of humanity, read Genesis chapter 3, and would therefore be interested in this new human race as well. That's the short answer. But there's another biblical, historical answer that's really interesting to think through, at least I think so as well. We know that the Jews and the Gentiles have been opposed to one another since the creation of the Jewish race, which was, of course, with God's call of Abraham 2,000 years before Paul. Okay? They've been at it for 2,000 years in conflict with one another. And now God has unified believers within these two ethnic groups into one people. But why was this such a cosmically big deal that the angels would be concerned about it? At least part of the answer is seen in the way Paul builds up this verse in verse 9, where he says that his apostolic role has been to enlighten all people of the plan of the mystery hidden for ages of God who created all things. Now, among other means, methods, this means that God has been enfolding or bringing out this plan for a long time. He'd hidden it, but it's taken an awful long time for it to enfold. That's his point. And one way this unification displays the manifold wisdom of God from eternity past is only evident when you consider these 2,000 years of the enfolding or the, the revealing of this plan until finally it is ultimately revealed here in Paul. Paul tells us back in chapter 1 that this plan that we're talking about here actually began before the creation of the world. 
before Abraham, because it says, in love, God predestined us for adoption as sons of God through Jesus Christ. That's where the plan began in eternity past, but the next stage of this redemptive plan for humanity was the creation of the human race. Adam was the beginning of a race of people who it was supposed would be the head of this one unified, sinless human race bearing God's image and existing for the glory of God as one people under Adam. But in the plan of God, Adam fell. And this glorious one united race of people quickly divided when sin came into the picture. It divided Adam and Eve first. Right after the fall, they're playing the blame game with one another. Cain and Abel, the next generation, that was a pretty violent division. Sin spread and entered into full bloom into humanity until God finally destroyed the earth through a flood, and he began again with Noah. And the reason chapter 9 of Genesis talks again about God being creating people in the image of God is because that's God's way of saying a new humanity begins with Noah. That was, that was supposed to be the plan. But even before, even before Noah died, Ham sins, and he separates from Shem and Japheth by God's curse. So these three went their separate ways, forming different cities in various places in the ancient Near East. Their descendants, however, came back together again, unified in Genesis chapter 11, but they were unified for wicked purposes. They were attempting to build a tower, a ziggurat, and the purpose of ziggurats was so that they could be up and be with God and be equal with God. And so God takes care of that. He divides them into different languages, but he focuses on Abraham and the Jews, who could be another new humanity, with God as their king and his chosen race acting as priests to the rest of the nations. That's the stated plan if you read Samuel and 1 Kings that the, the Jews would exist as priests to all the other nations, and God would be their king, and God would be glorified as the other nations saw Israel and the beautiful wisdom that they behaved with and the way that they planned and their gorgeous temple and all of that. And Moses later came as God's prophet to redeem the Jews from slavery, and he gave them his law and his promises. Again, the stated intention was that Israel would be this new humanity as they lived as priests of God representing him to the nations. Their sin, however, kept them from being this new humanity because they ended up looking just exactly like all the other pagan nations, worshiping the same gods and doing the same kinds of things that all the other pagans did. They, they were worshiping satanic idols. So they completely failed and so God judges them and exiles them. Now, at this point, if you are Satan, as you look at all of this division and these abortive attempts at a new humanity, you have to feel pretty good about your efforts. At this point, Satan owns all the Gentiles. Every single one of them are under his tyrannical authority. He has deceived them to the point where they worship satanically empowered idols. So the Gentiles are absolutely under his boot with no apparent chance of escaping his tyranny. The Jews have shown themselves to be dismal failures as potential heads of this new humanity. Their sin has taken them to the same place it's taken all of the other pagan peoples and all the others who failed in their attempt. 
So by the time the New Testament opens, the Jews are divided even on important matters of the faith. The scribes and the Pharisees are just one example of this division. And at this point, if you're Satan, the only possible fly in the ointment is this one promise that God made way back in Genesis 3, when God said, the seed of the woman will come and he will crush your head and bruise his heel. And he'd been on the lookout for that all the Old Testament. Up to this point, Adam had failed, Noah had failed, Israel had failed, but then his promised seed, the seed of Abraham, Jesus of Nazareth, is born. He lives a perfect life. He keeps the law perfectly. He lives as the promised Messiah, and he dies on a cross. And in so doing, he defeats Satan and all of his minions. He also defeated this horribly divisive power of sin that Satan had introduced. And with the power of sin defeated, although it's not completely eliminated, but it is defeated, now, Paul says, was the right time to create this new humanity with Jesus as the head. So unknown to Satan, God had planned out all of this, failures and all, to display something he could not have shown otherwise. He displays his grace and his mercy and his patience with this repeated failure of humanity. You cannot display grace and mercy and patience apart from a context of failure and sin, and that's why it happened, so that God could manifest that part of his character. And then Jesus comes, and when he defeats Satan, the risen triumphant Christ told the disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. That word is also translated Gentiles. Soon after that, Pentecost comes, and the church is formed, and the Spirit of God is poured out. Believers are given new hearts. The law is written on their hearts. But at this time, the church is only made up of Jews for the first few chapters of Acts. But the apostles had heard of Jesus' great commission, and finally in Acts chapter 10, Peter takes the gospel to the Gentiles, to Cornelius, and the Holy Spirit falls upon the Gentiles, which is a remarkable thing because that meant that the Jews and the Gentiles were absolutely equal because a spirit-filled Jew and a spirit-filled Gentile, spiritually speaking, are absolutely equal in God's sight. Next, Saul of Tarsus is miraculously saved out of dead Judaism, and in an utterly unpredictable development, he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles, and God blesses his ministry in supernatural ways. Churches are planted, and now you have a church of both Jew and Gentile. But what is revealed only through Paul and the apostles and the prophets is that this church, this church is the new creation of Jew and Gentile people. This was not simply a, for, a group of formerly hostile people who'd been reconciled by Jesus. No, this was the genuine in eternity past plan for new humanity that was always intended to be the fulfillment of God's plan with his son Jesus as the head. It's through his blood that God has made these disparate races one. They both share the exact same promises and blessings and are absolutely equal before God. And even though the Gentiles have none of the history, have none of the theological preparation of the Jews, the gospel is multiplying among these Gentiles and many people are being brought into the family of God. And these churches that are being planted are mixed Jew and 
Gentiles. So part of the amazement of this plan from the perspective of these angelic powers is that it looked like it had been completely destroyed, not once, not twice, but at least three times. Adam failed, Noah failed, Israel failed, but in God's eternal plan, it was through the saving work of his son that this multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-denominational church becomes God's new creation as his new humanity. Another reason this new humanity in Christ's church would have been of such interest, especially to these dark angelic authorities and rulers, is because it was a reminder that just as they had failed in their attempts to thwart Jesus, so also, as Jesus predicted, the church would be a people the gates of hell would not prevail against. And this life-giving, life-changing, new humanity-creating gospel would go forward, and they would be powerless to prevent it. These dark powers could not prevent the advancement of the gospel, and that's part of the wisdom of God revealed to these demonic beings through his church. In verse 11, he says, this was according to the eternal purpose that he had realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, all of that was part of God's plan, which tells us God does not make up history as he goes along. Okay? Predestination would tell us that. Every detail is pre-planned. Every predestined person, Jew or Gentile, of any ethnicity will be saved, no exceptions. Job 42.2 says of God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's the Bible saying that. All of God's eternal purposes, including this one, this creation of this new humanity in Christ, are invulnerable to being thwarted or frustrated. Everything from eternity past will be worked out precisely as God intended it, and that includes the church where his wisdom is displayed before these heavenly rulers and authorities. Now, beginning in verse 12, Paul shifts gears. He's been revealing what God has done through all this cosmic reality and the heavenly beings and all of that, but now he leaves this otherworldly cosmic element behind and he moves into some very practical consequences for the church, for this unification in Christ of Jews and believers. In these two verses, Paul reveals the consequences for the work of Christ's church. This unification is according to verse 11, in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now verse 12 continues, in whom, in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. This unifying work of joining Jews and Gentiles has profound and practical consequences on all believers. And that is, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Jesus. To stand before the Lord and creator of the universe without fear. How is that boldness and confidence related to this union of Jew and Gentile? Well, he tells us, it's in Christ Jesus our Lord. This boldness is rooted in our union with Christ. And it's our union with Christ that causes us to be in union with the rest of all God's people because we're all in union with Christ together, therefore we're all one together. If a person is in Christ, is a believer, then they are literally joined to him so that where Jesus is, spiritually speaking, they are. That means that the freedoms that Jesus enjoys as a son of God, the adopted sons of God in Christ church, 
also enjoy because they are one with Christ. The doctrine of the union with Christ is the most profound doctrine in the New Testament, arguably. That means that the only way a believer could ever hear from God, get out of my presence, is if the Father kicks his son out of his presence because we are one with Jesus. And because Jesus has perfect confidence and boldness to stand before the Father, those who are in union with Jesus enjoy that exact, precise, identical freedom that Jesus enjoys. All believers need to spend a lot more time than we do meditating on the glorious union with Christ and the boldness and the confidence that that gives us before God in prayer. Paul's final application may strike us as a bit strange, but he says in verse 13, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now, Paul, of course, is writing from a prison cell. The Ephesians know that, and they're obviously burdened by the fact that he is suffering in jail. Going to jail in the ancient Near East is not like going to jail today. It was not a good place, and yet Paul, it is said, the first place he went was to somebody in a new town and said, what is your jail like? Because he knew he was going to end up there. And so that was troubling to believers, many of whom had been won to Christ through him. Paul wants these people to know that they should see his imprisonment from a kingdom perspective, where the priority is the advancement of the kingdom. Paul's imprisonment wasn't fundamentally about any suffering that Paul was enduring, but what his suffering signified and what it was doing for the kingdom. From that perspective, Paul's suffering, he says, is your glory. That is, his imprisonment signifies the fact that he was a minister to the Gentiles like them. Because if you read the book of Acts, that's why he was thrown in jail. Because he was ministering to the Gentiles and they accused him wrongly of bringing the Gentiles to the temple. So his imprisonment was a reminder of the ministry that had brought them into this glorious relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And he's saying, that's your glory. Think about it that way. Now let's, two points of application very quickly as we close. First of all, based on what we've seen, we need to know something about God. First of all, God is not just a personal God to believers. He is a cosmic God who glorifies himself before a heavenly audience. This text with its cosmic element of God using the church as his stage to communicate his wisdom before these angelic rulers and authorities, that reminds us of something very important for us about God that we should never forget. And that is, even though we know very little about all of that because it's hidden, there exists in the heavenly realms, we must always remember, elements of his creation that are very important to God's carrying out his will on earth in his predetermined plans. God is not only in control of all these earthly realities, but heavenly ones as well. We don't know what God is doing in those unseen heavenly realms right now, but we do know one thing from texts like this in Daniel chapter 10, and that is he is sovereignly active in that realm, and what he does in that cosmic realm in some way plays out in this earthly realm as well. In other words, God is far bigger and has many more dimensions to him than most of us generally consider. It's easy for us because God is our personal savior in Jesus. It's easy for us to be cocooned 
in this little world where I'm mostly concerned about God being my personal savior, who is active in my family, and who needs to be active in my future and in the future of those I love. It's incredibly easy to forget when we're like that, that God is totally, intimately, comprehensively active, not only in my life, but in the lives of the other eight billion people on this planet, all at the same time. Eight billion beings to be sovereign over, to know their thoughts, and to be controlling even the smallest details of their lives. Yet even with how immensely infinite a God must be to be able to do that, it's not enough responsibility for God. He's also sovereign over this angelic, unseen realm in the heavenlies from what we see here in Daniel chapter 10, which is teeming with activity. Just because we don't know about it doesn't mean it's not going on, and God is over every bit of it. The cosmic element of God is not one we often think about, but if we want to love and worship God appropriately, this element of his supernatural activity needs to be factored into our understanding of who God is. He is so much bigger, and he is active in so many other realms other than this one time and space reality on planet Earth. This truth should fill our hearts with praise and worship to God. Second, the church of Jesus Christ is at the center of God's purposes and a main source of his glory. It's so easy to see the church through only earthly eyes. We all do that. When we look at it from only a human perspective, we see the problems, we see the shortness of money, we see the difficult relationships, we see the ever-present challenge, the fact that we've been given a task that we can in no way do. It's easy to get lost in all of that, but we must always see the church through God's eyes. And the picture we've seen of it today in this text is very important in shaping our understanding of the church because this is a big part of how he sees us. To God, the church is first absolutely central and essential to his global plan. That is, we're responsible to shine his light in this present darkness. Through evangelism, through missions, by living out the good works of Jesus Christ, we are also called to reach the other nations with the gospel, proclaiming the excellences of him who called out us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's our job. But Paul in Ephesians 3 reminds us that the church is not only central to God's earthly purposes, the church is also central to God's heavenly purposes. God wants to communicate his wisdom to the heavenly beings through us. Think about that. Now, he could do that in a thousand different ways. He could inspire another book of the Bible that goes into a fuller explanation of his cosmic wisdom, and they could have been exposed to that. He could write it on the clouds for them to see. He could do this any way he wants to, but we in the church must never forget that his chosen vehicle through which he communicates the wisdom of his eternal plan to save and unify a historically divisive and disparate church people is the church. His church, with all the sinful, troubled, stubborn people in it, this is a stratospherically high view of the church, and we must adopt it, because it's what the Bible teaches. If we do that, that will have enormous consequences on how we understand the church, how we act. We're going to be far less 
less likely to engage in attitudes or behaviors that in any way brings harm to the church. Having this perspective can help us see the local church for what it is, the glorious body of Christ through which God reveals his manifold wisdom to the heavenly realms. If the church is in union with Christ, this gets back to the union with Christ, if the church is in union with Christ, then our attitude toward the church must be shaped by our attitude toward Christ because we're in union with him. People who claim to love Christ but have very little or no connection to the church, they know nothing about their union with Christ or a union with Christ. They're horribly deceived and we should pray for those people because we love them. You cannot love God and not love the church. That's the message of 1 John. May God give us the grace to see his church through his eyes and love his bride as he does for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, there's so much here. We've just really, we've gone to the mountaintops today, God. And so, Father, I just pray that you'd help me, help all of us to take away from this what you would have for us. Mostly, I pray you'd help us to take away that you're a very big God and that you are worthy of all of our praise. You're worthy of everything we could give you, worthy of all our money, worthy of all our time. God, you are supreme. Father, help our love for you to be supreme as well. And God, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, Father, I pray that you would help them to see that one day this great big God is going to stand before them as judge. And if they have unforgiven sin in their life, he will judge them to eternal torment. Father, I pray that you would enable all of us to be riveted by that and to be faithful to you because of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.